Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. Hi everyone and welcome. My name is Chiara Morelli and welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. Today I'm thrilled to have Tanya Sundra with us. She's a member of the Australian New Zealand College of Veterinary Scientists Equine Medicine Chapter and she founded the Avonridge Equine Veterinary Services in 2015. She's going to talk with us about the use of vertiglyphosine in the management of hyperinsulinemia and laminitis in horses. She did a descriptive study that was published on EVE as an original article. Hi Tanya and thank you for joining us. How are you today? I'm really well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Right. I think hyperinsulinemia and laminitis are really common disease and equine vets deal with them daily. Um, can you just explain us why is what is it hyperinsulinemia and how is it related to laminitis? Yeah, sure. Um, it's certainly something that I see, like you say, daily at equine practice, um, which is what formed the basis of this case series that we're going to discuss today. Um, but really, um, just a bit of a background. So I think we'll all be aware that you know insulin is a hormone that's responsible for facilitating the uptake of glucose into cells and higher than normal levels um, of insulin can lead to laminitis. So there's been a few studies that have shown that intravenous infusions of insulin to normal horses will lead to the development of laminitis. And those studies were really pivotal in understanding the role that insulin paid in, played in endocrinopathic laminitis. Um, so these horses can have abnormally high levels of insulin um, due to a, cup, a number of factors. Obesity is probably one of the main ones, given that um, adipose tissue secretes hormones called adipokines, which can make the tissue more resistant to the effects of insulin. Inappropriate diets, so diets that are quite high in non-structural carbohydrates, will also lead to an exacerbated insulin response in horses. Um, and there are also some breeds, so genetics play a role in their insulin response. So breeds like your British native breed ponies, so your Welshies, Cobbs, Shetlands. Um, we also have a lot of them in Australia, but we also see them in Andalusians and Arabs as well. All right, thank you very much. And what kind of treatments are available for hyperinsulinemia in horses nowadays? Um, so historically, I guess drugs like metformin, which most people will probably be aware of, um, and that drug blunts glucose absorption um, to orally administered sugars. Um, but there's been a number of studies which have shown that it's got a relatively poor bioavailability in horses. Um, levothyroxine is another one that's been used previously, and that's shown to improve insulin sensitivity and also promote weight loss. All right. And... Sodium glucose co-transported to high inhibitors, um, what are they and how do they work? Yeah, so sodium glucose co-transported to inhibitors, um, also known as SGLT2 inhibitors, they're sort of the new kids on the block, I guess we could call them. Um, and they're a relatively new class of human anti-diabetic drugs. So they're used quite commonly in people to treat type 2 diabetes. Um, they're also used now to treat heart failure and things like chronic kidney disease in people too. But basically how these drugs work is they block glucose reabsorption at the proximal convoluted tubule in the kidney, which promotes glucose urea, which lowers blood glucose concentrations and therefore reduces insulin levels. Okay. And so now we come to the main uh, job that you did, basically. What kind of criteria did you use to include or not horses in your study? Um, yep, so this was a retrospective case series and we looked through my clinical records really to 
identify the horses that had presented with postprandial hyperinsulinemia and laminitis and who had failed to respond to diet and management changes for a minimum of six weeks and also those who were treated with ataglifosin for at least 30 days. Okay. And what laboratory investigation did you perform? Yeah, so because we were using an unregistered medication and there was not a lot of long-term safety data um, on its use in horses, we we wanted to make sure we did our due diligence um, and make sure that I wasn't causing any harm. So in addition to the postprandial insulin that we measured, um, also ran GGT, creatinine and triglycerides every 30 days. And that's um, part of the standard practice protocol that I have when we use SGLT2 inhibitors. What were your results? So we found that um, in horses that we treated with ataglifosin, we had a significant reduction in insulin concentrations. So we had a median insulin concentration of over 300 um, at pre-treatment. And by day 30, this had reduced quite dramatically to 43. Um, But more surprisingly was their lameness also reduced. And I graded them using the modified OBEL score um, that's come out of Queensland And we started with a score of 10 out of 12, but by day 30, this had reduced to one out of 12. This was quite surprising to us, um, given that a lot of these horses had chronic lamella pathology on radiographs. And we weren't quite expecting the dramatic reduction in pain that we saw, but um, it was certainly surprising, but the owners were definitely, definitely happy with the results. Um, Apart from insulin and lameness, we also saw an increase in triglyceride concentrations. They increased quite significantly. There was one horse which increased to um, a triglyceride concentration of 16. However, we didn't see any signs of hyperlipemia in any of the patients in this study. All right. And you're, so basically, your study did prove a marked decrease in insulin levels and lamenesses associated with laminitis after 30 days of treatment. Can I just ask you, what do you think has been the main limit of this study? Yeah, so it was it was obviously a retrospective case series. Um, and we the main limitation was the fact that we didn't have a control group. So um, that it would be it was something that'd be really good to do would be a prospective randomized blinded clinical trial. Um, But for the purpose of this study, um, because it was retrospective, we didn't have a control group and our case numbers were relatively small. SGLT1, what role do they have and how can they interfere with the treatment? Um, I I don't think they would interfere with the treatment as such, but just to give people a little bit of background who may not be familiar with SGLT2 and SGLT1. So at the level of the kidneys, SGLT2 is responsible for about 90% of glucose reabsorption and SGLT1 accounts for the remaining 10%. So there's there's some speculation in human medicine that um, by blocking SGLT2, we might see an upregulation in SGLT1. Uh, We don't really have the data on this in horses, but it's certainly something to consider. Okay. All right. Thank you. Um, so you did say that there was a big improvement in the laminitis score of all your cases. Can I just ask you, were the horses on box rest or did you leave them just in a restricted turnout? What did you do with them? Um, no, the majority of horses were actually confined um, due to their persistent lameness. So they were being managed, um, as you would imagine, a chronically laminitic horse being managed. So they were they were confined in yards. Not all of them were in stables, but definitely they were all in sort of small yards. 
Um, but the median duration of lameness of horses in this study was 41 weeks. So these were all really chronic cases which had res- failed to respond to conventional management. Do you think that the level of laminitis has improved only due to the articlificin or also because of the box rest? Um, I don't I don't think so. Again, um, without having a control group, it makes it it makes it hard to determine whether, you know, it, a, it was a temporal association or a treatment effect. So we can't we can't rule that out. But I think it was it was really due to the dramatic reduction in insulin that we had. Um, and given that a lot of these horses, I guess they acted as their own control in some way and that they hadn't responded to conventional management practices. And because they were so sore, we didn't really want to turn them out. Um, risk of doing further lamella damage. So um, so in short, I can't really answer your question, but it's a good question. <laughs> and you didn't do x-rays, did you? We x-rayed a lot of horses, but not all of them were x-rayed, just due to the financial constraints from the yeah, owner. sure, sure. And the one you did x-ray, what kind of pedal bone rotation did they have? Well, they varied. There were some with, you know, I think they, I can't tell you the exact degrees, but you know, there was a whole spectrum of, of rotation there. Like some of these horses were, had been chronically laminitic for, you know, up to five years uh, with intermittent bouts of chronic laminitis. So you can imagine what their feet looked like on x-rays. Yeah, sure. um, but yeah, we definitely had a, had a whole spectrum um, of changes on radiographs. All right. And um, your study highlighted a significant weight loss. What role does the ertiglyphosin play in this? Um, again, we and I, I'll be quoting sort of human studies a lot here because we just don't have the data in um, in horses. But if we draw parallels from human medicine, um, they've shown that SGLT2 inhibitors has been associated with weight loss. And we think this is due to a lowering in insulin concentration, causing an increase in glucagon secretion from the pancreatic alpha cells. And this leads to fatty acid mobilization and lipolysis. So we think that's what... Um, that's what accounts for the weight loss that we saw in this study. Okay. You were talking about hyperlipremia, increase in triglycerides level or hepatic lipidosis. How do you explain that and what are the risks associated with that? Um, yeah, so this again goes back to um, we think the high triglycerides is due to the increased glucagon secretion in response to the lowered insulin um, secretion. So... We did see hypertriglyceridemia, and again, this this sort of, I guess, peaked at about 30 days, but by 60 days and the horses that we did have follow-up data for, the insulin, I'm sorry, the triglycerides had returned um, close to normal, um, not back down to normal, but close to normal. And we didn't see any signs of hyperlipemia in the horses in this study. Um, but you do bring up a, a really good point, and I think it's, it's really important that these horses who are on treatment with the tagliflozin they're, that they're closely monitored for signs of hyperlipemia because I don't think any of us want to have to deal with that um, in a oh, horse, you know, the, the devastating consequences of it. So um, practically what I tell owners is that if their horse stops eating, um, call, stop giving them the medication and call me straight away. Um, or if there's any times where maybe the horse is being fasted for a gastroscopy or treated for an impaction colic and you know, they're being, the feed is being withheld from them, then I do tell them to temporarily stop atagliflozin until their appetite returns to normal. And this is what they do with people as well. If they're on treatment with SGLT2 inhibitors and they're required to fast for sort of minor surgeries or day procedures, their anaesthetist will actually um, 
temporarily stop SGLT2 inhibitor therapy two to three days prior to this, and they'll then resume it once the patient goes back to eating normally. Okay. And polyuria and polydipsia is something that you did mention in your paper, and you also see in other signs like glucosuria. Yes. Uh, I would have expected glycosuria, to be honest with you, but what about polyuria and polydipsia? How do you think ertiglyphosin is causing that? Um, yeah, so we think it's potentially due to the glucosuria causing a chronic osmotic diuresis. Um, again, this is drawing parallels from human medicine, but it's certainly what they see in people. And it, it brings up also another good point that there is a risk for volume depletion um, so it's really important that these horses are always um, have, are given free access to clean, fresh drinking water. Okay. So basically what you would tell them to stop the treatment if they would stop eating or did look lethargic maybe, and if the polyuria and polydipsia gets severe, stop treating as well. Would you warn them for something else or this is what you would focus on? Um, that, that's what I, that's what I definitely focus on. Um, I don't tend to worry too much about the PUPD. I am checking their creatinine monthly. Um, and I haven't seen any, um, clinically relevant changes in, in creatinine. So I don't think it's, we're having issues with kidney function, but it, it's really important that, you know, they, they're, they're not allowed to get dehydrated. Um, or if there are times that they are going for long periods of time without water, then I would temporarily stop metagliflozin. Okay. Can you actually do that without interfering with the treatment, stopping ertiglyphosin for a few days and then restarting it? Or do you have, I don't know, to change those? Um, change um, anything? I, would, I, think, I think in that case where the risk might be high that would be developing complications, then I would choose to prevent that from developing and then deal with their insulin levels once the horse is better. Um, so we know that a tagle flows and there's, there's been a few horses where I've checked, um, at day one or two of starting treatment. And we know that it brings, lowers their insulin levels really, really quickly. So I think it's, I think you can stop, um, for two, three days without too much concern and then restart treatment and their insulin levels will come down really quickly. Okay, thank you very much for that. So I think we all agree that it's worth to consider ertiglyphosin as successful treatment for hyperinsulinemia. Um, definitely, I think we probably more studies are needed regarding this medication. Uh, one thing I'd like to ask you, the importance of testing before prescribing the medication, because quite often the, the main limit are money, really. Sure. So if I see a fat horse, the first thing I'm going to think about, especially if it's a little bit foot sore or increased digital pulse, is probably either has a chronic laminitis or is going to start soon to have laminitis. Um, one thing I get asked, though, uh, why do you think it's so important testing if clinically, clearly this horse has hyperinsulinemia? Do you actually think that testing then is needed before starting treatment with this medication or we can actually get away with treatment without doing any blood test? Um, look, I guess that's for the individual vet to have that conversation with the owner and you've got to weigh up, you know, pros and cons. But I certainly um, test all my patients before starting them on treatment. I can't think of one off the top of my head that I've I've started on treatment without testing their insulin levels because one I tend to test them all postprandially and I think that gives the owner a really good indication of whether 
of what they're feeding, whether or not it's appropriate or not, and whether the horse has um, an appropriate insulin response to their diet. The other thing that testing does do um, in regards to insulin testing is owners really like having that number. So, you know, if their horse starts off with a postprandial, pre-treatment postprandial insulin of, you know, over 200, and even though it's on a being managed very well on a low sugar diet and following treatment, you go back and retest, it's, you know, dropped down quite considerably. I think it gives them a little bit more motivation to continue going along with their management changes that they feel they're making headway and they've got that objective measurement to go by too. Um, and the other important reason to um, perform some blood tests is that we don't, like I said earlier, we don't really know the long-term safety of these medications. So I think prior to starting treatment, we need to make sure the horse doesn't have any compromised hepatic or renal function and we're not doing any harm by starting these medications. Okay, so basically, as a rule, you normally test the insulin and kidneys and liver function as well. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's why just for sake of, I don't know what lab test costs over there, um, but just to keep costs down for my clients here, then that's why we chose to check, um, you know, um, GGT, creatinine, triglycerides. Um, I've included GLDH as well now, but um, yeah, it just keeps costs down rather than running a whole biochemistry profile, I guess. Okay. And are you happy, Jess, I don't know, quite often what I get to do is doing a baseline insulin because quite often I get out to see horses and people have probably been thinking about laminitis, but they don't want to have you out again to do more testing. Do you think that that baseline insulin would be enough or would you always encourage them to have a postprandial insulin? Um, I guess a basal insulin is better than, better than nothing, right? Um, if it comes up with a high level, then you've certainly um, have got something to work with. But the frustrating part comes with, you know, if it's, if it's quite low or normal, but in the back of your mind, you're thinking this horse, you know, has to have postprandial hyperinsulinemia, then they, you know, they have to pay for another test. So I'll always try, even when I'm booking in these appointments, if it's, if it's a little Welsh pony that the owner says has been, you know, not wanting to walk around as much, well, it sort of sings out that we're probably going to have to do some sort of metabolic testing. Um, I will try to schedule these appointments in um, at a certain time, so about 90 minutes postprandially after the horse has had its normal breakfast to try to tee it in. But I do, I do get that is frustrating. So a basal insulin is better than nothing, but if you can get a postprandial or an oral sugar test response, then those are always going to be a lot better. Of course. Um, length of treatment, how long do you think we actually have to use ertoglyphosine um, to see results and for how long would you suggest to use it? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's a question I get asked a lot by vets. Um, I think it, I don't think we know the exact answer and I don't think it's going to be the same for all horses. I think the, the ones where um, they've been, we've been able to get a lot of weight off them when they've started treatment, so they've reduced their peripheral adiposity and their overall tissue insulin sensitivity has potentially improved as well. I think we can get them off treatment um, sooner rather than later. As soon as they're sound, I'll certainly start tapering treatment at that point. But the important thing is to always test their levels and see what their insulin is um, as you're tapering the treatment. The, the ponies that are those lean EMS phenotypes, I find them um, a lot more difficult to predict when and if they can come off treatment. And I think those guys just have a genetic predisposition to have a, you know, abnormally high insulin response to 
really low sugar diets and I don't think I'm not sure if we can manage them without medications I've I've had um courses on it now for probably close to 20 months or so uh, because as soon as we try to take them off, their insulins just go through the roof, so they do stay on treatment. Um, so to answer your question, we don't really know how long to keep them on. Um, if they can, if they can get a lot of the weight off them and they're sound, then obviously try to stop them. But the most important thing is if you're tapering or stopping treatment, then make sure you recheck them to, and catch those insulins before the horses become laminitic. Okay, and you will always do uh, postprandial insulin in these cases, right? Yeah, because that's generally, like I said, is what I what I use the majority of the time. So it just means we're comparing apples with apples um, at each yeah, time point. Sure. Okay. How do you select your patients? Because the horses in these studies had six weeks of diet prior starting treatment with ortifritacin, right? Yeah. Yeah. So how do you select them? Do you normally wait? to see any changes in the diet, any response to the diet? And is there any case in which you would suggest treatment straight away? Um, yeah, so that's another really good question. There's um, So these horses, they, were, they had diet and management changes instituted for a minimum of six weeks. Like I said, some of them had been laminitic for years. So they had already, um, the owners were managing their diets really well. They, you know, were doing everything right and we still, still weren't able to... Um, improve their insulin response so those guys because they were all chronically laminitic they went on treatment um and they obviously improved which was which was really good but as far as how i'm using the medication now is um i I certainly don't think that it's a substitute for diet and management and i certainly wouldn't be advocating its use if an owner isn't 100 committed to um you know instituting proper diet and management changes and it's 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 not going to be a substitute for just let turning a you know obese Welsh pony out into a paddock in the in your case in the middle of summer when they're knee high full of green grass. Um, I still think there's there's needs to be management needs to be a significant um, element in this. But in certainly if I'm presented with an acutely laminitic horse that's very very sore, um, and the owners have already started a low sugar diet, I'd, I'd have no problem starting this horse on a tagliflozin because I think the the response, the insulin response is going to be quite dramatic and I think it does improve their recovery from laminitis over just diet and management alone. The improvement in the laminitis score, do you think that yeah. it's just an improvement in the lamella health or is there any other effect of vertiglyphysis that has changed the laminitis score? Um, look, I think, I think we're certainly seeing... Um, you know, the effect of um, lowering insulin concentrations on um, things like IGF-1, um, which has been postulated to be, you know, one of the reasons that horses get laminitis from high insulin levels and how this affects the foot. Um, again, I'm not sure if that explains the the time in which, how, how fast these horses recovered from laminitis. So, you know, a lot of these horses, all of them were better by 30 days, but most of them were off all their pain medication between 7 and 14 days. And this was despite some very, very chronic lamella changes on radiographs. So we're not reversing those changes in 7 to 14 days. Um, but there's there's some evidence in human medicine that um, chronic insulin resistance actually um, leads to some chronic pain conditions like fibromyalgia. I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here, so stop me if you want to, but there's a, 
there's a neurologist in Texas who looked at this and who showed that um, treating a subset of his patients with fibromyalgia with insulin sensitizing medications like metformin dramatically reduced their pain scores. And this was patients that weren't responding to conventional treatments like gabapentin. Um, and he thinks that this is because insulin actually modulates some central pain pathways within the brain. And by improving their insulin sensitivity, we're modulating these neuropathic pain responses. So there's that's just one theory. Um, there's, there's no evidence for that in horses and they, they're only starting to look at that in people. But I think it's something that's it's a really, really interesting and exciting area um, that we do focus a lot on what's going on in the foot, but I'm sure there's a lot of peripheral pain pathways that we're ignoring with these horses with, um, with chronic laminitis. Okay, thank you very much for that. And do you think a different dose would help? We were discussing about all the side effects, so hyperlipemia, um, increase in liver and kidneys values. Do you think that a different dose would be helpful? Yeah, so um, I'm using it now at 0.025 mg per kg, so half the dose than what is published in the paper. And obviously we need some PK data and I'm in the process of trying to get some funding to do this. But in the meantime, um, I have started using it 0.025 mg per kg and I found a similar reduction in insulin concentrations without seeing the increase in triglycerides. So that tends to be what I use to, the dose I use now to treat patients. But again, most of my experience is at that high dose. So I'm not sure how effective or if the 0.025 dose is going to be effective in all patients, but I certainly would start there in terms of how I'm using it in clinical practice. Okay. And do you think that all horses are suitable for this dose or according to the severity of the insulin level and their obesity level that would change? Um, I don't I don't really have enough data, I guess, to comment on on that, whether or not if we wanted to see increased weight loss or um, if we have lean horses, they go on a lower dose versus more obese horses. So I would, I tend to just start them at the, at this point at 0.025 mg per kg, and I haven't seen any um, any ones that haven't responded to insulin so far. But again, in a very small number of horses. But I think given that we're, I'm not seeing the increase in triglycerides at this dose, I'd be happier to to continue on with this for all horses and then titrate the dose if needed. Um, if they don't respond, you can always increase it. Okay. And why did you start using ortoglyphosine? Um, it was really it was really born out of frustration, to be honest. Um, there was a lot of I was dealing with a lot of chronic laminitis cases and a number of these horses who were included in this study, um, in this case series were actually the owners were actually considering euthanasia at this point. And um because they just struggled to manage their pain, um and they, they really didn't want to see their ponies walking around like they were or not walking around as the, as was mostly the case so um yeah it was it was between a conversation I had um over zoom um between me and Dave Rendell who's one of the co-authors on the paper and I was just asking him about you know what's what's some of the different ways we can look to managing these ponies because people are considering putting them to sleep and we you know, we, we knew there wasn't a lot of evidence um, to use a tagliflozin. Nick Frank um, in the US had used it on a few patients, and I know Dave had spoken to him previously about it. So we decided to try it on, on some of my more chronically laminitic horses to see if it would uh, make a difference. And, you know, it's been a game changer for those ponies because they're, 
all of them are all back in work now and um, the owners are really, really delighted with their responses. Well, it's quite interesting. Have you had, ever had a case that didn't respond as you would have liked to and you had to change plan? Um, I've had, I've had some that I would have liked to have seen their insulins reduce more, um, on a taglifosin, I guess they, they've reduced, but they, they haven't come down to normal levels, but again, um, the horses have always been, have responded clinically. So I tend to focus on the clinical response more than trying to chase the lab value, even though it frustrates us and we all get, <laughs> I guess, suck it into that at some point. Um, there's been a, a couple that after 30 days, their insulins have increased. Um, however, they haven't developed laminitis whilst they've stayed on treatment, but their insulins have crept up at sort of 60 and 90 days. And I think this potentially is due to um, SGLT1 upregulation. Um, or, or also human behaviour. Owners might sort of not manage them quite as tightly as they were because they are moving around a lot better. So they may not be managing their diet as, as much as they should. Um, and that could account for it. Okay. In this case, did you consider chasing, um, choosing another medication like metformin or levothyroxine or did you just stick to the, metf- the ertiglifzine? In the ones that have increased after 30 days, is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh, no, no, because the horses um, were clinically well and their lameness scores um, were really low that we we decided just to keep going, um, keep going with the tagliflozin. Personally, I haven't had any success in metformin in the horses I've used it on previously. Um, and levothyroxine is really expensive in Australia, so I don't have much experience using that. Yeah, it is here as well. It's quite expensive. Yeah. Thank you very much, Tanya, for having accepted my invite. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And if there's um, any vets that'd like to reach out, I'm more than happy to, to chat to anybody about our study or answer any of Tagle Flows of questions. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Have a good day. See you later. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Education podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash e.